Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Trevor Reagan to the Coaches Club Podcast. Trevor is the founder of The Learner Lab, a two-time TEDx speaker, and he hosts the Learner Lab podcast. He's an expert on the science of learning, and he helps people, teams, and organizations get better at getting better. In our conversation, we dive into the science of learning and how it applies in sport, growth mindset, and upgrading the way we talk about tough emotions. I'm excited to share this conversation with you, and I'm confident that it will help you get better at teaching and leading. Let's hop into it. I would just love to know a little bit about how and why you started Train Ugly that has now kind of become the Learner Lab. Um, what was what was that process like? Yeah, so it's it's sometimes it's easy to look backwards and act like you knew what you were doing. It's like, oh yeah, this was my plan all along and that was not the case. Uh, I think I've always been curious about the sports world and learning in general. Um, I tried to walk onto the Duke basketball team and I know you can't tell on Zoom right now, but I'm like five, nine. Um, <laughs> but I, I actually almost made the team, which was crazy because I like grew up in Wyoming. It was this like huge goal of mine to make it on the Duke team. And I was like the last person cut and it was devastating. Um, and I didn't handle that failure well at all. Like it put me into a huge tailspin. But I think to be honest, looking back, it was like, that was probably one of the the biggest like turning points because that like planted this question in my head of like, dang, what could I have done better? Like, I felt like I did everything I could do, but it wasn't enough. What could I have done better to make it over the hump? And so that question has been like planted in my brain since then. It was a long time ago. So I think that was an important thing. And then I think both my parents were coaches growing up. So like, obviously the sports world was a huge part of my life. Um, I was lucky about 10 years ago, I had some money saved up. Um, and I, I just decided like, look, I'm going to start a, a blog. I'm going to interview anyone that is willing to talk to me that's smart. So like if I read a book and I like it, I'm going to try to talk to the author. If someone cites a study, I'm going to try to find the person that did the study. If uh, there's a, a coach out there that I think is smart, I'm going to try to reach out. And so I started just interviewing like crazy and started a little newsletter, started writing blogs and sharing the interviews that I was doing. Um, and then that picked up a bit of a following at the start, I was very like basketball focused. But then what I realized is like, wow, 95% of the stuff that I'm learning isn't just basketball like related. It, it could help in other sports. And even bigger than that, it could help people outside of the sports world. It took me like three years to get to that aha moment. And when I did, that's when things like really blew up of like, okay, I'm not just talking about how to make better basketball drills here. Let's actually expand this to how can people become better learners? How do we get better at getting better? And so that's been my focus for the past five to six years uh, is trying to answer that question. And I've sort of moved away from like strictly interviews and blogging. Now it's a balance of I, I create a lot of content myself. I deliver a lot of workshops to sports teams, schools, corporations, and then 
I spend like a third of my time still learning and interviewing and trying to like get to the to the core of like okay what are the most heavy hitting principles that could help us become better learners mm. that's really good uh, I think that segues nicely into the next question I have. Um, obviously you have a ton of experience studying these things, educating other people on it. Um, what have you found are some of the most common misconceptions that I'm thinking specifically coaches, but if it, if it's in general to go for that have around learning. I think there's a few things and I like that question because that's a good way to think about this. It's like, okay, there's a thousand things we could do to improve the learning environment in the sports world, of course. But what we want to do is look for like the most high impact ones that are actually things that we could change and things that we could do. And so a good way to, to like get to that is to ask like, okay, where are we like completely off? Not just like, we're not aware of this idea. It's like, actually we're doing it completely wrong. <laughs> and like, those are the adjustments we need to make first. Um, I think as far as sports specific and like the way we think about practice, that's maybe one big area. It's, I think we're conditioned to think that like practice should be super organized and look really, really good and be super controlled. But a lot of the research shows that if you actually want to create a better practice environment, um, there should be a bit more struggle built in, a bit more challenge, um, a little bit more chaos. That doesn't mean you make it like completely reckless and like unrecognizable, but practice should be a bit more difficult than we think. And I think that's one area that's important. I think another one that we spend a lot of time on especially with coaches and, and I guess anyone in a leadership role is oftentimes as leaders, we put our people in boxes and we have these uh, ideas about like, oh, their strengths and weaknesses, what they learn and can't learn. And of course, everyone has strengths and weaknesses, but the research around learning is clear. It's like our capacity to grow is much greater than we realize. And so one thing we spend a ton of time on is just helping people like sidestep those labels and boxes we put people in and so we encourage coaches and I guess leaders to like look at their people as learners because they are it's like our people have a bigger capacity for growth than we realize and if we believe that and treat them accordingly that's going to make a big big uh, impact on the learning environment so it's getting clear on like how to make better drills and a better practice. It's looking at our people as learners and giving them the reps and experiences to grow and not just like pigeonholing them in these boxes. Um, and then maybe the other big one, and you can cut me off anytime. I could talk for five hours about this stuff. I think the other big one is getting way better at how we talk about like tough emotions, like fear and stress and anxiety. Uh, it's especially in the sports world. It's like, look, as athletes, we're signing up to do something that creates a ton of discomfort. It's like most other industries and most other activities, you don't do it in front of a crowd. It's like there's a scoreboard. You're literally battling someone. So there's like all these things built into the sports world that make it fun and enjoyable. But those same exact things that we love about sports, every single one of those creates discomfort. And so we have to be better as coaches talking about discomfort. On the surface, it seems like a simple solution. It's like, oh, well, 
we know that people maybe don't perform at their best when they're feeling fear. And we know that people might not make the best decisions when they're feeling fear. And we know people might not learn their best when they're feeling fear. And so as coaches, our default approach is to tell you to calm down or don't be afraid or be fearless. And that, like we mean well when we say it, but the research around tough emotions like that is crystal clear that that is exactly the wrong approach. Because telling people to be fearless and telling them not to be afraid more times than not makes the fear worse or it can create shame. And so there's a, a really, I think, interesting study that sort of paints the, pic, the, the, the picture. Uh, I think it was Alison Woodbrooks and she did this at Harvard Business School. So they set up like a high pressure situation. The students had to like go into a room and sing, don't stop believing to a stranger. And there was like a Nintendo system hooked up measuring their singing accuracy. So obviously it's designed to make you feel some tough emotions. So one group before they go into the room is told, calm down, don't be afraid. Sort of our default approach. The second group before they go in the room is taught to reappraise those emotions. And so they're basically taught like, hey, it's normal to feel a bit nervous. That's expected. That's human. Um, that's like a part of doing something like this. So the group that's told don't be afraid scores a 53% on the song and the group that's told that it's okay to feel scores an 80% on the song. It's like a 30% boost in performance coming from one little adjustment to the way they talk about the fear. And I think the really cool thing about this study is they measured the physiology. They were measuring heart rate, blood pressure. And what they found is there's no difference between any of the students. Everybody's heart rate goes up. Everyone's blood pressure goes up. So you could say on the surface, all the students felt the same. So when we're talking about upgrading the way we talk about tough emotions, we have to realize we don't have much power over how we feel. The power comes in the way we interpret those feelings. And like that's the piece of the puzzle that we're not aware of. Put yourself into the shoes of group one. Group one is told, calm down, don't be afraid. Then they're put into a situation where they're going to feel something. So they're likely to interpret those emotions as negative. It's like, oh, you told me don't be afraid, but I am afraid something's wrong. I'm not prepared. I'm not ready. And when they're in the room trying to perform the song, their focus is likely on the fear. Why am I feeling this? How do I get rid of it? And then you put yourself into the shoes of the other group who is given permission to feel. They're feeling the same way in the same room doing the same activity, but they were told it's okay, which means they can turn their attention to singing the song. And so as coaches, like the, the takeaway from that study, and there's hundreds more that show the same thing. It's like, we have to give our people permission to feel this calm down, don't be afraid approach. Again, on the surface, it makes sense, but it's much more effective to say, look, you know, and I know this is a challenge and you care about this challenge and there's a scoreboard and there's an audience and that's going to create some emotions and that's okay and simply giving people that permission and just sending that signal that it's okay to be nervous it's okay to be afraid maybe not always fun to feel that way but it's okay uh i think that can have a huge impact on how we perform but even bigger picture how we learn so what we're trying to do is take the power away from our tough emotions by working to accept and understand them. And so like, think about that through the learning lens. It's so many times in our lives, everyone listening to this, I think we could agree where we were presented a great opportunity to grow, but because it created discomfort, we found a way not to do it. 
because we assumed it's like, well, if I feel like this, I must not be ready or this must not be the right move. So we gave those tough emotions a ton of power. What if someone told us, hey, just because you feel like this doesn't mean you can't handle the challenge. In fact, you're a human. You're designed to feel like this. You feel like this because it's stretching you out of your comfort zone. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that you're a human and you have a brain. <laughs> and so the more we know about why we feel tough emotions and the more we teach people that it's okay, we start to take the power out of their hands. And I think when you teach people that more times than not, they're likely to choose to do that challenge now because they know it's okay to feel nervous. And when you go look at the performance side of the equation, it's now I'm at the free throw line and it's overtime and there's 10 seconds on the clock and I'm freaking out. But I know it's like, that doesn't mean I'm not prepared. That means I'm a human. And that will put me in a better mindset to make the free throw versus trying to make yourself stop feeling nervous in a big moment like that which will definitely not work. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, I love that. That's really good. And I think that actually I'll, I'll share a quick story with you. I think that I almost stumbled onto this, um, this past Wednesday night, the ninth grade boys basketball team that I assist with, we, uh, we were playing a game and we were playing a team that, that we should have been beating pretty mm -hmm. easily. Uh, we were down 13 with two seconds left in the third quarter and they're only six minute quarters. So they're, they're quick games mm -hmm. and we get a, we get a lob play right at the buzzer uh, to go down 11 to end the third quarter. The guys come over into the huddle. Everyone's frustrated because we feel like we should be winning this game. And I asked the head coach, I was like, Hey, can I talk to him here? And he's like, yeah, go for it. And he was frustrated too. And so I uh, got in the huddle and I just said, Hey, take a deep breath. We know that, that it's been frustrating, mm -hmm. but we're okay. And then, and then I actually, and, and I would love to know if this connects to any research that you found. I just said, hey, I want you guys to remember for a second those times in practice when we've played really, really good basketball, when it's been beautiful, where we've gotten great shots, where we've defended really well, we've taken away good shots, and those games where mm -hmm. we have played to our potential that's who we are. We can do that in this fourth quarter. I don't know that we'll be able to win the game, but I know we can make it close. Nice. And we end up, we're down 11 to start the fourth quarter. We win the game by six. We outscore them by 17 points in a six minute quarter. Um, I'm not taking credit for that performance by any means, but I think like you just shared, I tapped into mm -hmm. and I didn't even explicitly recognize the emotion as much as you were just talking, but mm -hmm. even that, just, I know we're frustrated. Like, yeah, it's, we, it's huge. Yeah. Um, the, the, the other part I really like um, that I would keep doing if I was you. So like a lot of times in those situations, like first you zoomed them out a bit and reminded them it's like, hey, uh, we have the skill set to do this. So like, that's good. But what I love the most about what you said is we might win and we might not. <laughs> and like that is a powerful thing to say because that can kind of chill us out a bit. It's not going to completely remove like all the emotion, but it's good at just like providing some perspective. So many times like coaches go, all right, we're going to do this and, and we're going to win. 
well, the truth is you're probably not going to win. And you, when you keep saying that we're going to win, we're going to win and we're going to win and it doesn't happen, you start to like lose like the faith of the players. And so it's much better to just be honest. It's like, look, we might win and we might not, but let's go let it rip. Because if we don't let it rip, we're definitely not going to win. So our choice is you could do something that might work, might not, or will definitely not work. And so let's choose the option of, this might work, this might not. And I love that approach. I think every human would benefit from like getting there more often. It's like, look, the outcome is never guaranteed, but what you, I, the outcome is never guaranteed unless we go out and totally like pack it in and don't try. In that case, the outcome is guaranteed that it won't be a good one. Um, so I think about that a lot. And I think that's a lesson people can use outside of sports too. This might work, this might not, Let's just say that out loud because that's the truth. Yeah, no, that's really good. Uh, and I think this is connected to what you were just talking about earlier with recognizing emotions. I think it's a, a key part of it, but I'd love to just hear from you a little bit more about how you think that uh, coaches can help their athletes, um, the ways that coaches can practically help their athletes develop resilience and a growth mindset. Sure. So... For growth mindset, what we like in the at its core growth mindset is the belief that I can build skills, the belief that I could get better at pretty much any skill growth mindset. And so the messaging around learning is very, very important as leaders. We have to talk about things as skills because they are so, so many times in the sports world, a player is good at ball handling and we call them a natural and a player is not so good at ball handling and we label them as like oh that they they have no handle they could never get better both of those are super dangerous for a lot of reasons one is as a coach if I believe those things I might limit the reps of the player that I think could never develop a good handle the other problem is as a coach I'm probably going to share these labels and boxes to the players now think about the problems that that could cause. If you tell me I'm a natural at something, that can be dangerous because the, the way I could interpret that is like, oh, I don't need to practice this. I'm a natural. I was like born to be good at dribbling a basketball. I don't have to practice. It's okay for someone to believe that they're good at something for sure. You could say like, yo, you have a great handle. You've earned that skill. You've developed it. I don't know exactly how you developed it, but you have, and you could get better if you continue to work at it. That's a better message than you're a natural. And then on the other side of the fence would be maybe a player isn't very good at ball handling. I cannot tell that player, oh, you're just not born to be good at handling the ball because that's false. You can say, look, you know, and I know ball handling is not your strongest skill, but it is a skill and skills are built, not born. And if you practice and if you struggle and if you stay patient, you can get much better at ball handling. And I'm here to help you do that. That's a thousand times more effective than like, ah, you're just not cut out to handle the rock. It's like, so I'm always a proponent of sidestepping these limiting beliefs and stories that we impart on our people. And you do that by talking about these strengths and weaknesses as skills, because they are, and then going one layer underneath that, it's the, the growth mindset is the idea that we can build our skills. And that's not just some fluffy research or fluffy concept that you see on Twitter. That's backed by like decades of neuroscience. It's like, 
I interviewed one of the most famous neuroscientists. His name's Michael Merzenich. He's been studying brains since like 1971. And he straight up said crystal clear during the interview, the research of neuroplasticity, the study of how our brains grow and change shows absolutely everyone can get better at pretty much any skill, hands down, period. And it's like, that doesn't mean we're all going to master everything, but we could get much better than you realize. And so I think about that a ton. That, that's sort of the bedrock of a good growth mindset is just understanding the neuroplasticity. So we understand that we all have a capacity for growth. That's in, in Twitter terms, a growth mindset. And then to apply the growth mindset, it's stop putting people in boxes and stop telling people they're naturals and stop telling people they can't learn stuff because the research doesn't support it. Now, again, I'm going to say this again. In the sports world, of course, we all have our strengths and weaknesses and positions. And just because we allow our tall player to handle the ball a bit more doesn't mean that player is going to be our point guard next week. But what we are saying is all the players on our team can get much better at pretty much any skill that we realize if they're allowed to practice it and if they're provided the right support and environment. And you can use that to your advantage and help the people around you get much better if we develop the growth mindset and then treat them accordingly. Yeah, yeah that's really powerful. Yeah, I, I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier as far as learning environments and kind of a misconception that learning needs to look pretty or that in the context of sports that practice should um, be very clean and organized and, and free of mistakes and errors. Uh, when I was interviewing John Kessel, he mentioned that you spent some time observing uh, USA Volleyball and what their training environment was like. And so I would love to just hear a little bit about that experience from you and then kind of beyond that, what have you learned as far as um, what effective learning environments look like in sports for yep. athletes? All right, so there's a couple ways to think about it. One would be relevant for what you're about to do. As you develop an outline for your TED Talk, one approach would be you develop your outline and you give the talk a thousand times in an empty room in front of a mirror. And that's probably how most people would practice it. It's like, yep, I'm going to just rep this out in front of the mirror. What do you think would make that practice more effective? Doing it in front of people. Boom. There you go. And I could ask my grandma the same question and she'd say the same answer because this is not rocket science. What we need to do to improve our practices, realize as we start to introduce variables that we're going to see during the performance into our practice, it makes the practice better. Of course, you're going to go in front of the mirror a few times and that's fine. But at a point that becomes sort of like high rep but low struggle practice and when you do stuff like that your brain just slips into autopilot and when your brain is in autopilot you're not going to get the retention that we need and so okay how do you flip that how do we keep our brain out of autopilot well one is introduce a few variables that we're going to see during the performance an audience another way to keep your brain out of autopilot is space out our attempts so rather than just running through it 10 times straight it's do it once wait an hour 
do it again. That's more like what you have to do on game day because you're not going to just go up and do the TEDx talk and get to do 10 runs and then do it again. So you have to get good at kind of like doing it, waiting, doing it. So there's a, a few tricks like that to just keep my brain out of autopilot. Uh, another way to think about it would be, and this is sort of like the analogy that like put me on the map a long time ago. It's especially in the sports world, the game when the scoreboard is on and we're playing a team is pretty random and unpredictable and chaotic. We don't know what's going to happen. No two plays are the same. It's like highly unpredictable. That's a lot like the jungle, the wild. Oftentimes our practice resembles a zoo. And so what we do as coaches is from Monday to Thursday, we train you like a zoo tiger. Our practices is, is controlled. It's predictable. I'm providing everything you need. It's super, super easy and struggle-free. But then the game is the jungle. And you could go ask a five-year-old, well, what would happen if you took a tiger that spent its whole life in the zoo and threw it into the jungle? It doesn't stand a chance. And of course it doesn't because it wasn't prepared to deal with the jungle. And that's what we do in sports a lot is I train you like a zoo tiger. Then I expect you to survive in the jungle, which is the game. Then you go back to that five-year-old and ask them like, well, how do you think a tiger learns to survive in the jungle? And they go, oh, they probably just grow up in the jungle and they get used to it. It's like, yep, again, this is not rocket science. And then you could use the same logic to improving your practice. If the game is the jungle, I need to practice more like the jungle. What does that mean? It's identifying the variables that I'll see in the game and starting to introduce those into practice. And again, this doesn't mean we're reckless and we just roll the ball out and play. It's okay. How do I start to introduce a bit more pressure, a bit more uh, randomness, a bit more unpredictability, a bit more struggle into my practice? It's never going to be a one-to-one comparison, but as we start to introduce those variables, we can definitely improve the quality of our practice. So we train in the jungle and that helps us survive in the jungle. Now, sometimes people hear this message and they go overcorrect and make it too hard. And so my best advice is when you're trying to increase maybe the difficulty of a practice, it's be aware of the amount of struggle and the type of struggle. So let's go back to your TEDx talk. So I just told you, like, look, when you're practicing this, you need to stay out of autopilot. You need to struggle a bit more than maybe you're comfortable with, but that will make it better. Now, if you overcorrected, you're like, okay, I'm going to give my TED Talk in front of people that are booing me and throwing tomatoes at me, and I have noise-canceling headphones on that are playing, like, hip-hop music, and I'm going to struggle. And if I could do that, it's like, no, dude, that's too hard. And none of those variables are going to be present in the actual performance. And so what you want to do is introduce variables that will be there when you give the real TED Talk. Those are the ones that we use to ratchet up the struggle. And then we just have to be aware, just like working out. It's like, you don't want to add so much weight that you can't move the bar. You're struggling, but not growing. So it's finding that zone where we're experiencing what the Bjorks call desirable difficulties. And like, that's where we're going to grow the best. Um, And so then you flip that to the sports world. It's like, look, we don't have to introduce all these ridiculous things um, that like, like, I guess it's easy in the basketball world. Just go on Instagram. You see like all these ridiculous drills. You can't even recognize the skill they're trying to build. 
it looks cool on Instagram and they're using a lot of like toys and all sorts of things. But in the end, it's like, no, you're just getting better at the Instagram trick. You're not getting better at the actual skill. So use the variables we'll see in the game to ratchet up the difficulty and don't make it so hard you can't function. And those are two things I'd think about for you and improving any sort of basketball practice or any sports practice. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's really, really good. Well, let me, let me just ask you a few questions that I've asked everyone I've interviewed. Um, okay. That are maybe shifting a little bit, but I think some of what we've just talked about will tie into them. Mm-hmm. In, in your opinion, in your experience, um, what do you think is the biggest problem facing youth sports? And let's think high school and below. I think sometimes we lose sight of like sports can be such a great like teacher in life. And, and we mentioned this at the start of the interview. It's like the things you get to experience as an athlete are rare. It's like in other like activities, you don't get like that, the sense of being on a team and dealing with adversity and every week is a new battle. And like we could go on for five minutes about all the opportunities that athletes get that other people usually don't. And so sometimes like we don't appreciate that enough or talk about that enough. And I think for people like us who are older and maybe played back in the day, it's like, I could say without a doubt, a lot of the experiences that I had as an athlete are helping me do what I do right now. But almost all of those experiences had really nothing to do with like the score on the board. <laughs> like, I don't remember the score of like any game. I don't remember our records. I don't remember any of that. And of course that stuff matters. But if I had to run it back, I'd spend a lot more time like appreciating like just like the other things that aren't outcome related. And I think when we do that, we are going to extract more from the experience and just be in a place where like we get more from the experience and I think we're going to perform and learn more along the journey. And that's valuable. So I think it's just kind of like giving the people regardless of the age group, a bit more perspective about like, yo, you're lucky to get to do this. And like, let's never lose sight of all these amazing things that we get to do as athletes. And again, as we remind people of that and help them focus on those things, I think it's beneficial in the moment and 10 years later. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Here's, here's one of my last questions. Uh, what do you think are three or four things max that every coach of every sport at every level, they should be educated on these things or know how to do these things in their coaching? I think one would be growth mindset and understanding what it actually is and how to incorporate it from the individual and leadership standpoint. And we covered that. From the individual standpoint, we want our people to believe that they can grow and get better. And from a leadership standpoint, we want to believe that our people can grow and get better. I think upgrading the way we talk about tough emotions, that's valuable at any level. Like I've given that talk to Olympic teams and I've given that talk to third grade basketball teams too. Same one. Uh, That's beneficial at all levels. And then I think the third 
and I'm putting these in order too. The third would be getting into like, all right, how do I make design a practice in a more effective way to increase the reps from a quality and quantity standpoint? How do I teach a skill in a way that it reflects what the actual skill is in the game? So like getting into a lot of the stuff that Kessel talked about, that'd be my third as far as foundational things. So growth mindset, getting better at talking about tough emotions and getting better at how to design a practice so we get more from it. Those would be the three most universal and there's probably 10 more things. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Just to follow up on that third one, in your experience doing these trainings, all of your learning, what are, what are again, kind of the most common pushbacks that you get from coaches when you bring them this information like this is actually what training and practice should look like well on the surface the original pushback is like what are you talking about that's not how we do it but if you present it in the right way and i i i did a a presentation on some of this stuff with a, a major league baseball team so i did a lot of work with their minor league staff and then the gm was like yo this is going to be scary, but can you come do this with our major league hitting coaches? And he's like, I know this probably won't go well, but we want you to try. And so I go in and I was like, okay, how do I present this as not an attack, but like with logic? And if you explain it properly, they start to connect the dots and they're like, oh, that's why this works and this doesn't. That's why we see this. Or, oh, this player that I work with in 1994, he did this and that's why he was so good. It's like this stuff is very logical, just like we mentioned with like asking my grandma and talking to five-year-olds. Like in the end, the principles are grounded in science, of course, but it's very logical. And so if we're just careful in how we present it and go from like a very logical like approach, I think a lot of people are going to jump on board where in my past, I would go in and be like, everything you do in practice is wrong. And this is the better way. I don't care what you're saying. People aren't going to listen. And so now I go in kind of softer and with logic and with science and explain it from the ground up. And then the other bit of advice I have that it's kind of a trick, but it works is if I'm talking to baseball coaches, I'm giving golf examples. If I'm talking to basketball coaches, I'm giving baseball examples. So as you like prove your points outside of their industry, they're a little more receptive. And that's the value of the jungle and zoo tiger thing. Because in the end, if you agree that the zoo tiger isn't going to have very much luck in the jungle and that a jungle tiger has a better chance of surviving in the wild than a zoo tiger, you're on board with what I'm about to say. <laughs> so like, it's like prove the point outside of something that's very personal to them. And then you take those core points and logic and then you bring it into their industry. Um, so that, that seems to help quite a bit. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, here's my last question. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit and just because I'm really curious about your response. Uh, let's say that um, you have a 12-year-old uh, basketball team that you are coaching. You just signed up. You're coaching a bunch of 12-year-olds, mm -hmm. and you have a 90-minute practice with these 12-year-olds. Mm -hmm. Tell me just a little bit off the top of your head, what would you be doing in that practice? What would it look like? What would it feel like? Just tell yeah. me about you in a 90-minute practice with 12-year-olds. So, all right, 
this is this is like what I did for seven years during our basketball camps. So I would play a ton of three on three and a ton of different variations of three on three. I'd play half court three on three. I play no dribble three on three. There's a game that we invented called sideways where you play full court three on three, but on the main hoop and the side hoop of that same size or same side. And what that does is shrink down a court. So they're still running up and down. Uh, but the court is like shrunk. It's like 30 feet and it's awesome. So I'd be playing every variation of three on three that I could possibly imagine. I would have a focus of maybe every 20 minutes and I'd re change it every 20 minutes or so of like, all right, right now we're focused on finishing with our offhand. Uh, when we're playing these three on three games, if you finish with your offhand, it's double points. So I would be doing that a lot. So manipulating rules to encourage the type of reps that we want to see. Um, I would show a lot of video of say they're 12 year olds. I try to find videos of 14 year olds doing the skills that I'm trying to teach. So if we're trying to teach them how to shoot a floater, how to finish left off with their offhand, whatever it may be, or a new move, I'm not going to show them videos of LeBron. Maybe I'll show them a video of LeBron, but then I need to find a video of a 14 year old doing it because the signal that sends is, I, I guess if I'm watching only videos of LeBron in my brain, I'm like, that's cool, but that's LeBron and I'm not LeBron. So I don't know if I could do this. When I show him a video of a 14 year old, it's like, oh, if they could do it, so could I. So I'd be teaching skills through video. I would break down the video and create like skill keys of like, all right, what are the three things that this person does to execute this skill? I'd create sticky v visual language around those keys. And then I would let them like practice those keys. I would use pretty controlled block repetitive practice in short spurts. If I was introducing a new skill where it's like, Hey, here's the new move. Go do it on air for five minutes. I might film you and let you watch that. And after five minutes and you know what it looks like and feels like now I'm integrating it into my three on three. It's like, all right, if you do this new spin move in the three on three, you automatically score a point. And if that move leads to a finish, you get double the points, whatever. And so if you just zoom out, and I know I'm all over the place, it, it would be, I would use video to introduce what it looks like. I would use block practice to help them f get a handle of what it feels like. And then I would allow them to execute it in a more game-like situation, some sort of half court, three on three, full court, three on three, whatever. There's a ton of different variations where they're like starting to use the skill in the wild. And I would encourage those reps by manipulating the score and the rules because what I want them to do is get good at doing it in the game, not just I can do it against the wall. And so that's what I would think about a lot. I would say most of my practice would be spent in three on three situations because I like that because it kind of gets rid of positions. I would rotate position. I would do two on two and force people to play on the perimeter and in the post. Um, I would get rid of almost all positions and just let people get good at basketball. And I think that would be really, really beneficial. And I can say that because we've done that. We did that every year for seven years straight with the, the camps that we did. And to watch when you create a good environment where those type of skills are developed and the players are allowed to do those things, 
even in the week that we had spent with the team, players make big time leaps. And it's really, really cool. Where like, I, I'll never forget, like, there is this tall player that was never allowed to, to practice on the perimeter, never allowed to dribble. And by the, the fifth day of the camp, he was able to grab a rebound off the rim and go coast to coast and like dribble through traffic and finish. He, he was able to do that because he was allowed to practice. Like that is a, a, a giant leap forward in his skill set that's beneficial because he was allowed to practice these skills. He's a basketball player and not just a post player. So I think that's one of the big benefits of this type of practice. And even in USA Volleyball, it's like they're at the highest level. They spend a big chunk of their practice playing doubles and triples in volleyball because they know even at the Olympic level, almost, I think it's like 40% of points at the Olympic level are played out of system, which means things aren't going as planned and I have to do something that's out of my skill set. Like our outside hitter has to set, our setter has to hit or whatever. And so what they realized is like, well, Yes, we have our positions, but it's really useful if we're getting our outside hitters some reps handling the ball and setting and passing because when we're out of system, she might have to do that. And the best way to do that is just shrink the teams and get rid of positions. And then, of course, we can spend some time working on our specific skill sets and positions for sure. But I think more of the, if it's a pie chart, more of that pie should be spent on just becoming a better volleyball player, a better basketball player, not just a robot that can do two things. Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode, and thanks again to Trevor Reagan for coming on to the podcast. If you'd like to connect with Trevor or learn more about his work, go to thelearnerlab.com and follow him on Twitter at learner underscore lab. Coaches, if you enjoyed this episode or found it valuable, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And give us a shout out on Twitter at coachesclub underscore. That's C-O-A-C-H-E-S club underscore. And lastly, if you'd like a copy of the notes from this episode, go to transformsport.org slash podnotes. That's transformsport.org slash podnotes, or click the link in the show notes to get a free copy of the notes from today's conversation. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.